This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. Hi, this is 15-Minute History. I'm Henry Winsack, graduate student of history here at UT and assistant editor at Not Even Past. And today I'm speaking with James Vaughn, an assistant professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin. He studies the history of Britain and the British Empire in the late 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. And his current project re-examines the American Revolution as an international and imperial event. Welcome, Professor Vaughn. Thank you, Henry. And thanks for having me here at 15 Minute History. Our pleasure. So just last week, our nation celebrated the 4th of July, uh, the consummately national event commemorating our successful revolution against British colonial rule. But you're here to argue that we should not regard July 4th, 1776 as a strictly national moment of history, but rather a global one that reflects questions of politics, economics, and ideas that transcend national boundaries. And one particularly important international context for this moment was the British Empire. So can you talk about the state of Britain's empire before 1776 and how the 13 colonies fit into that? Sure. That's a great question. Um, to kind of coin a phrase, my my main interest is deprovincializing the American Revolution. Mm. Now, of course, the 13 colonies that revolted in 1775 were 13 provinces of a wide British empire, and it was a revolt of essentially British provincials on the far western edges of that empire. But what often is missed in the American Revolution and the story of the development of the British Empire is it didn't just purely take place within an internal context of either colonial North America or the British Empire, but really in a transnational, transatlantic context of the development of commercial and manufacturing society. Long story very, very short, traditional agrarian civilization had begun to break up in areas of Northwestern Europe in the 14th and 15th century. And in key places such as the Netherlands and England and other areas of Northwestern Europe by the late 17th and 18th centuries, that traditional agrarian civilization had begun to be replaced with a commercial and manufacturing society. Now, there wasn't really multiple commercial and manufacturing societies. Rather, there was an interdependent cosmopolitan commercial manufacturing society that stretched from places like Lyon and Marseille all the way to London and Bristol, across the Atlantic to New York and Philadelphia and Boston. And that was a profoundly interdependent society in which people produced and worked and exchanged the products of their labor in an ever more complex division of labor and an ever wider market with one another. And that the British Empire was fundamentally bound up with the development of that transatlantic commercial and manufacturing society. It was both cause of that society to be able to rise, the founding of those colonies, the development of raw materials and staple products to be produced and sent back to Europe from those colonies, also the development of those colonies as markets for manufactured goods that were produced in Europe. And these were important to the rise of that commercial manufacturing society. But it's also the case that the British Empire drew its strength from the development of that commercial manufacturing society, meaning the British Empire drew its revenues, its customs, its resources from the flourishing of that empire. So by the middle of the 18th century, a very symbiotic relationship had developed where the British Empire furthered the development of an ever more expansive transatlantic commercial and manufacturing society 
and directed the development of that, but also benefited from its development in terms of the taxes and the revenues and the resources levied on the goods and commodities exchanged throughout that empire. So it's a very beneficial relationship. You've touched on a really interesting dynamic, this trans uh, transatlanticism, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, within the British Empire. Uh, how did that impact the way in which American colonists interacted or thought about other British colonists, uh, for instance, in places like India and Ireland? So that is a very excellent question, because there's a sort of a complexity to the way that American colonists think about their relationship. In many respects, the conception of the American colonists was that they were like British subjects within England and Scotland and Wales itself. That is, that they were direct subjects of the British crown, right? And that they had their own little parliaments, just like England and Scotland and Wales had the parliament sitting in London. And they viewed the extension of British trade and the extension of British colonies as also being about the extension of British laws and British rights. So they very much viewed themselves as a kind of Britain West. And they thought that their legislatures, again, this is by the mid-18th century, had the kind of status that the parliament had within Britain itself, and that they were direct subjects of the crown and had all the traditional privileges and rights thereof. Now, in the context of when they begin to debate with imperial officials, particularly in the 1760s, there is a desire to both assert their traditional privileges and rights as British subjects, but they also begin to assert uh, the natural rights, right? And this is not reducible merely to an inherited British discourse of rights, but this is rather a transatlantic enlightenment discourse. So there's a complexity to the imperial relationship because they think of themselves as full British subjects with all the rights and privileges that metropolitan Britons have. Can you talk about that a little bit more, these enlightenment ideas that transcend national boundaries? Could you explain a little bit uh, what those ideas are forwarding and also what role they played in the British Empire? Sure. So let me address the Enlightenment first. It's commonplace to say things like the Scottish Enlightenment or the French Enlightenment, or people speak of a Neapolitan Enlightenment, but I would reject that. I think that there's just one Enlightenment, mm. and it's about anyone who has access to it that can read either the original languages or translations of ideas circulated in pamphlets and newspapers and debate and reflect on them in a coffee house, in a public square, in a tavern. What becomes really central to that enlightenment is a sense in which people begin to feel that they're responsible for the creation of their own world. That's a complex idea. Let me concentrate on two thinkers, both of which were very important to the American colonists, John Locke and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, both kind of classic thinkers in the social contract enlightenment tradition. John Locke had fundamentally said that the basis of the polity should be life, liberty, and property. Now, what he defined property as was labor, nature transformed by labor. So within Locke's conception, there essentially emerged an idea that human beings created property, that property was not divinely ordained, that property was not uh, uh, things that people had innately in them, such as aristocrats having the property of being honorable and noble, but rather that property was something that came to being through individual endeavor and people's collective endeavor to one another, and the people transformed the world and themselves and created claims to property in so doing. And so Locke gave a sense of the world as a product of human interaction, humans working together individually and collectively to transform the world around them. 
And Rousseau, particularly with The Social Contract and The Second Discourse on Inequality, published in the 1750s and 60s, gave the idea of men and women as really products of societies they built, right? That there's not an immutable essence, but rather that men and women change over time, given the kind of societies and historical frameworks they develop themselves. So what's really important about the Enlightenment, which takes place roughly from the late 17th to the late 18th century, and is really the fundamental background of the American Revolution, is a growing sense through Lockean ideas of property being a product of labor and Rousseauian ideas of the social contract and men and women responsible for the creation of their own societies over time. There comes a sense, not simply that human beings change, but that human beings can be agents of their own change. And the only other thing I want to say about the Enlightenment is that it wasn't just an intellectual accomplishment. It was a social fact. What I mean by that is because of the rise of commercial manufacturing society, there were new urban spaces. There was an entire extra parliamentary, extra official political culture that existed in the world of coffee houses, in the world of taverns, in the world of theater, in the world of public discussions and the exchanges and marketplaces of Amsterdam of Rotterdam, of Charleston, of Philadelphia, of Bristol, of Liverpool. And in that world, people came together and discussed the latest publications and debated ideas. And it wasn't noble people of blood or birth that won out, but rather it was people who could persuade others that their ideas were right that won out. It seems to me an interesting irony of this period in history is that, you know, the American Revolution was not an inevitable fact. And in reality, a lot of individuals like Thomas Paine and Benjamin Franklin prior to 1776 were not advocating for independence from Britain, but reform within the British Empire. Uh, can you explain a little bit how their thinking evolved? A very famous historian, Gordon Wood of American history, calls this process the Americanization of Benjamin Franklin. And I think it applies to a whole host of the revolutionary generation, as much to people like Jefferson and Adams as to people like Payne and Franklin. And what it is, is these fundamentally enlightenment men and women who participate in a world of pamphlets, of coffee house, of lawyerly uh, suits, parliamentary debate, of discussion, these people that also argued in salons and debating societies, many people, not just British subjects, thought of the freest society in not just the West, but indeed the world in the middle of the 18th century being the British Empire. Many people thought that with the possible exception of the Netherlands, the British Empire was the most religiously tolerant society, even though it had an established Church of England. It had de facto an incredible proliferation of not just Protestants, but even non-Christian religiosity. And that it had a parliamentary system that although very few people could vote in, that nevertheless gave relative transparency to government and was based on elections every seven years and people could riot and influence the electors. Furthermore, it had ended absolute monarchy, that the English revolution in the 17th century had brought divine right monarchy to an end, right? And suggested that there has to be some kind of consent and some degree of representation in political affairs. Now, People thought the British Empire was the best embodiment of that. And especially someone like Franklin, and especially somebody like a young Thomas Paine, were absolutely supporters of Britain's wars against France, because they saw France as an alternative model, an absolute monarchy with an intolerant Catholic Church, and not allowing the same kind of freedom of discussion and association 
that the British world did. In fact, one of the greatest French philosophers of the 18th century, Voltaire, wrote his philosophical letters as a reflection on his time in England and how much open and freer society it was and how much he viewed it as a model of the future of Europe. Now, what happens in the 1750s and 60s is in the wake of the Seven Years' War and the imperial reforms and the coming confrontation between metropolitan ministers and officials and radical figures like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Paine, what begins to happen is there is initially a movement for the reform of the British Empire, the desire that it change. There's a growing feeling that this empire and its political and social institutions are no longer adequate to the kind of new world that's coming into being in the 18th century Atlantic. But at first they want reform. They want changes. They want things like the reform of parliament, the expansion of the franchise, the inclusion of new groups and the right to vote. They want the colonial legislatures to have a say in producing colonial policy, or they want an imperial parliament, the colonies to be able to send representatives to London and sit in the parliament. Hence the famous war cry or revolutionary cry of no taxation without representation. They move towards reform. It's only when they believe that reform is no longer possible that Britain is irredeemably, in their view, aristocratic and oligarchic, that they come to the conclusion of no possibility of reform, but rather necessity of revolution, necessity of break. And that is the seabed of American independence. But it should be said that it was an incredibly difficult intellectual and personal process for people like Thomas Paine and Benjamin Franklin to come to those conclusions. They genuinely thought that for all of its foibles, the British Empire, for all of its exploitation of Ireland, for all of its toleration of the existence of West African slavery, for all of its incredibly oligarchic politics, that it nevertheless had been the best heretofore vehicle of the expansion of human prosperity and enlightenment and freedom. And so it really took a very long and complex and difficult process for them to be willing to reject it. So if revolutionaries like Benjamin Franklin still considered themselves British prior to the revolution, can we draw any comparisons between colonists in America agitating for reform and colonists in other part of the British Empire, say in India or Ireland? Tune into part two of my conversation with UT professor James Vaughan to learn more about the American Revolution and its global context. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-Minute History. That's the numerals 1-5-Minute History. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.